It is so much fun to be home and to worship with you. I just have to say, we had a great time in Israel, and, and again, we went to Corinth, we went to Ephesus, we went to uh, Athens, we went to several places. I've stood on Mars Hill. I've, uh, we've had an amazing experience. We will try to, to pass some of that on to you. Uh, but this morning, we just, we, we're just so glad to be back, so glad to, to be back in America. We're so glad to be back in this church this morning with you. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 23. If you look at your notes, it says Matthew 22, and that's because I was still jet-lagged when I wrote that. It actually should be Matthew 23. We're talking about the adventure of prayer, worship and prayer. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. What's Palm Sunday all about? Anybody know what Palm Sunday is all about? It's Sunday morning, but we're going to have an open forum for a minute. What's Palm Sunday all about? What happened? Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives. He came riding on a donkey, and he came into Jerusalem, and everybody received him, and everybody was happy about that, right? And the Jews began to wave palm branches and they said, Hosanna in the name of uh, the king of David, the, the son of David has come. And it was a very messianic thing that was happening. The Roman centurions literally were called out. A centurion came and, over, and, and watched him ride down. And Jesus did an amazing thing. He wept as they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. As they were exalting him as the Messiah, Jesus began to weep because he realized that they did not get it. They did not understand who he was. And as he came down just that, it, it's, it's less than a mile. And, I, and again, we've walked it. And, and you see him coming down that little path on, the, on that young donkey. And, and you realize that he understood something that they did not. They thought they were worshiping. They thought they were praising the Lord. They thought that their, their words were exactly what needed to be said. And Jesus understood better than they that they had completely missed what was happening that day. And as we come to the end of 12 weeks of looking at prayer, it's a fitting place for us to be because I am convinced after being and watching some things in Israel, watching some things that, that happened other places, I'm convinced more than, than ever that we've missed the whole point of prayer and especially worship in prayer because we compartmentalize our life. Is your life compartmentalized? You say, no, I don't think so. I think it you know, has a pretty good flow. Really, do you have a routine in the morning? What do you do the first thing? The alarm goes off, you hit snooze. How many of you do that, honestly? How many of you hit snooze, okay? Uh, you, you get up in the morning, hopefully you have devotions and prayer, and, and maybe you talk to the Lord, and, and you, you, you start out the day with Him, and then you, you get a shower, and then you feed the dog, and then you eat, and then you feed the dog, and then you... Uh, you get dressed and you feed the dog. Well, that's the way it is at our house. That's the way they want it to be. Actually, the dogs are like you hit the alarm, you feed the dog, you pray, you feed the dog. You, they would like feed the dog every, in between all the, the time that, that you're doing that. But we have this compartmentalized life, don't we? Uh, again, we were on a 12-hour flight from Paris to San Francisco, and I thought, you know, you, we don't really multitask in our life. We think that we do. And then I found a person behind me, a single mom with two children. One was probably a year and a half old and one was maybe three and a half, four years old. And the flight attendant comes and is asking for drink orders from her. She's trying to feed the toddler. She's trying to keep the three and a half year old from crawling underneath the seat and grabbing things there and, and trying to cut an airline meal with those plastic knives you know, you know they can't stab a pilot because they can't even cut rubbery chicken. So, I mean, you're, you're trying to cut that and keep the toddler, and she's giving these answers, and she's doing about four things at once. I'm thinking, she's not as compartmentalized as I am. I'm a guy. I have little squares. I do one thing at a time. 
But I realize all of my life is about me. And all of your life is about you. What if when we pray in the morning, it's not really supposed to be that we just ask God for those 14 things or three things or seven things that we think of. What if we're coming into the presence of God and inviting him into everything else that we do for the rest of the day? What if we're opening a conversation at that point in worship with him and asking him to be in the mundane details of our life? What if we take him out of this compartment of this prayer that we do in the morning, if we do that at all, what if we take him out of that compartment and we say, okay, God, you have free reign to everything that I am, everything I'm going to do today? Well, that's the premise of what we're talking about today. Because Jesus, when he gave us the disciples' prayer, when he gave us the pattern prayer, it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, set apart, uh, worshipful is your name, not my name. Worshipful is your name. This is all about you, Father. This, this is about you. And we come to the Father and we, we come into his presence just as we sang in this song. We come into his presence and invite him and his presence into our life. Not just one compartment, but all of our life. Worshipful prayer shifts the focus from me to God. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 23. We're going to look at just a few verses. uh, Because I want to answer two questions this morning about worshipful prayer. What inhibits our worship in prayer? What inhibits us? What slows us down? What stops us? What's, what's putting the brakes on our prayer? Matthew 23, verses 34 through 38. You know this. Uh, Jesus is, has been teaching, and, and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are having a great time because they can't, get, they can't trip him up. Look at what it says in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees are going, great, he silenced the Sadducees, you know, the, these two religious sects, these two groups of Jews, and, and the Pharisees are going, hey, he silenced them, it's our turn. So the Sadducees got together, one of them an expert in the law. I love this. He's an expert in the law. And who's he going up against? The one who created law, the one who spoke law into being, the one who spoke creation into being, the one who knows everything. An expert is going up against this guy. This is like me going up against Michelangelo and telling him how to sculpt or to paint. I mean, come on. An expert in the law tested him with this question, teacher, rabbi, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, he's showing respect, but he's not showing due, not showing honor, because he should have said, God Almighty, Lord of all creation, which is the greatest commandment. But he doesn't do that. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, and get this, you've heard it before, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. We have a motto around here. To, we're to love God and to love others. And we take it from this because then it goes on to say, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But I want to forget the second part. I just want to look at the first part because in prayer, it's all about that first part. And we don't understand it. What inhibits our worship in prayer? Let me give you three hints. Three hints that I gave myself this week. Number one, beware of distorted attention. Beware of distorted attention. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love him with all your heart. 
If we love God with all of our heart, does that mean that he doesn't pay attention to the, the small things in our life? Does it mean that we get caught up in the mundane things too much, that our attention is focused on the wrong things? Does it mean God does not care about us, that he doesn't care about the minor details of our life? Is God interested in what happens to you tomorrow morning when things begin to fall apart at your, your work or your, your life or your job or your, your feelings, your emotions? Does God care? Of course he cares. God seems consumed with the minutiae, those minor things in our life. He cares about those things. You say, Pastor, how do you know? Because in the Old Testament, Hannah prays for a son. His name is Samuel. In the Old Testament, we, we see that Elijah prays for rain after they've been without rain for three and a half years. We see in the New Testament that James urges us in James chapter 5, to ur- he urges us to pray for those who have physical needs, who are ill, who are ailing, who have diseases. He, he does that. When people come to Jesus, he heals them. There, I've heard it said that there's never a story in, in the New Testament where Jesus goes to a funeral, he completely disrupts the funeral because he raises the person from the dead. Every time Jesus shows up at the funeral, somebody comes back to life. Jesus cares about the details in our life. The little ones and the big, the big ones. When Jesus gave us that model prayer again, he talks about uh, asking for daily bread. We, we underst- I mean, we get daily bread. We don't understand that, that back there it was always, they didn't know if they were going to have anything to eat that day. In the New Testament, Jesus assures us that the Father cares about how many hairs are on our head. I try to keep God not as busy he doesn't have as much work to do for me as he might for some of you. Our brother Dan Isles, I mean, my brother is, you know, he's, what, 20 years older than I am. Look at how much hair he has. I'm just kidding. He's not. He's my contemporary. But God, God's a lot busier with Dan than he is with me. He's got so much hair that he has to count. I read one time, I can't imagine anyone, much less God, caring that much about my life. I mean, my wife doesn't care how many hairs are on my head. At least she tells me that. I, don't, I can't imagine anyone caring that much about the minutiae of my life, and God cares about the minutiae. And, and Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 is talking about God feeds the birds so you don't have to worry about food. And, and he says that God clothes the, the, the flowers of the field so we don't have to worry about our clothes. God cares about those things. And since, since he knows and cares, we should not let that skew the way we think of it. But the truth is, every day... We're consumed by that. We're, we're so focused on the minutiae of our life that we, we crowd God out. I went on a tour in Israel. I knew every morning and every evening that there would be this spread of food in the hotel. There would be all kinds. You'd wake up in the morning. There was 14 different kinds of fruit. There was a couple of different kinds of eggs. There was fish and rice and all kinds of stuff that I wouldn't eat at breakfast, but I knew it was there. And in the evening, you'd come back, and there were different things. There were, there were all kinds. Every day, I knew were there going to be falafels or, or some other food that I'd never necessarily fallen in love with, but I could certainly subsist on. I knew that was going to be there. And yet, if I'm more than two hours away from a meal, my mind immediately says, wonder when we're going to eat. Don't we? And the Lord says, do you understand that's not the big deal? Jesus reinforces that whole concept with the parable of the sower or the seeds, uh, the soils that come out. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, look at what it says. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, 
That's us. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, by the minutiae, by the, by the details of life. They're, they're choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures. Did you notice it's not just the bad things, the worries. It's choked out by the riches and pleasures. All those good things that God gives us, those things can come in and they can surround us so that we miss the big thing. And they do not mature. Philip Yancey put it this, this way. Listen to your life, to its passion, its dreams, its disappointments, its tedium as well as its drama. It, come, it came as a gift. Your life came as a gift and each day, too, unravels as a gift. God wants an invitation to share in every detail. Beware of distorted attention. Number two, be, be aware of inattention. It, it, not only are we told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, but we're also told to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. Someone define soul for me. You want to write that down on your notes? Just define what that is? Uh, the, the medical people are still having a hard time finding that. There's an EKG, electrocardiogram, that, that checks your heart. EEG, electroencephalogram, checks the brain. Did I get that right? I got a couple of doctors here. I get that right. Okay. And what checks your soul? E what? There's, there's, no, there's nothing. What is the soul? What part of it? You know, what part of the anatomy is soulish in us? But we know when we connect with someone, don't we? The soul is essential. God made us soulish creatures to connect with him. Have you ever used the term, they are soul mates? Now, do you think that's because it's a certain type of food that they eat? Soul food? No. Have you ever seen anybody connect? We had 36 people. Some were from Canada, some were from Alabama, some were from Iowa, some were from Michigan, some were from California. 36 people thrown together on this tour into Israel. We had nothing in common except one thing, Jesus Christ, and we were soulmates. We connected. We sang in St. Anne's Church just by the Pool of Bethesda, just outside the north, northern part of Jerusalem. There's the Pool of Bethesda. There's a healing uh, miracle that takes place there. And there's this church called St. Anne's or St. Anna's. It's, it's got the most perfect acoustics of any church I've ever been in. And we went in, and there was, a, there was a South African group. They were praying aloud, and there was this cacophony of noise, and it's because of the perfect acoustics. It's very live, and it was kind of wild. And so we just sat down on one side of the church, and another group came in behind. We had 36 on this side of the church, and another probably 35 or 40 set on the other side. They were waiting, and finally the South African group realized that two other groups were waiting, and he called an end to the prayer, and they were leaving. And, and I began to sing with our group, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And as the 35 voices began to raise, there's this gorgeous sound that just fills. And the, some of the South Africans knew the song, and they were singing as they left. And we sang a couple of songs, and then the group that was there, we didn't know who they were. They didn't know the two songs. They didn't know the Alleluia song and one other song. And, but they began to sing a song, and then the second song that they sang, we knew, so we sang along with them. And then we started, How Great Thou Art. Oh, Lord, my God, when I am awesome. Sing it with me. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. 
Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. And as our voices begin to lift, the voices of this other group, I later found out they were from a different part of the country. They were Presbyterians. There wasn't a Baptist in the group. And we made this connection. Not because we knew the same song, but because we knew the same Savior. Not because we knew the same words, but because there was the same soulish connection. And God says, when we pray, nothing is more important than the soul. That's how we connect with God. If your prayers are just words, you've missed it. If your prayer is just emotion, you've missed it. There's a soulish connection that God wants to make with us. Psalm 14, look at what it says. Psalm 14. Verses 1 through 3, I will extol. What does that mean? That means I'm going to, I'm going to bang the drum. I'm, I'm going to let everybody know. I'm going to be loud about it. I'm going, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt, magnify his name forever. Can we make God's name any bigger than it is? Can we make God any bigger than he is? God is all, all worthy. He is, he's all powerful, all knowing. He is love. We can't make him any better than he is, but we can remind ourselves how great he is. This morning, we got a text from, from our kids in Austin, and, and little Lincoln was in his first Palm Sunday. Uh, he got to sing the song and he got to wave the palm and we got this little kind of half-dark picture of Lincoln connecting soulishly with his Savior. And I'm a thousand miles away, but my grandpa's heart connected with my grandson on Palm Sunday in his church as they celebrated. Be aware of inattention because if, if we go through the, the motions and our soul doesn't connect there's no attention. The third thing, be wary of diverted attention. Be wary of diverted attention. It says, love the Lord with all your mind. What's interesting is, if you go to the Old Testament, this is actually taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you go to Deuteronomy 6, and, and this is what the Jews call the Shema, the Shema, the Shema. The Shema is what the Jews recite every day as they begin their prayer, and it starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, not mind. And Jesus changes it. Now, now again, the, the Greek, sept, the, the, the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew, what we call the Septuagint, that uses that terminology. And so Jesus could, could easily translate uh, uh, relate and recite from that, but it's not what we expect him to do. Why does he do that? Well, he's talking about all of us in our entirety. And again, look at the context. There's a man who comes intellectually challenging Jesus, and, and Jesus knows that if he quotes from the Old Testament and talks about strength, that the, the man will say, yeah, but intellectually I'm still ahead of you. And so Jesus is calling this young man on the carpet. He says, listen, 
emotionally, relationally have you connected with me? Soulishly have you connected with me in prayer? But even more than that, in your mind, have you really connected with me in prayer? Do you love me with your entire being? Do you talk to me? Do you communicate with me? Do you love me? And it may be in the mind that the greatest battle for worship is fought because we are so easily distracted or diverted, aren't we? It's so easy to do that. Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace. You'll keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. You'll keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast. You keep your mind focused on it. How long can you keep your mind focused on anything? How long can you keep your mind focused on anything? It's really tough. Uh, again, we flew over to Israel. We lost uh, you know, 10 hours, and we go over there, and we begin to tour, and we would get in the bus, and we would talk about the next site on the way, and I would look back, and there were some really godly Christians in the back of the bus. And I was hoping it wasn't me. I mean, the time change. Every time you sat down for 30 seconds, you went to sleep, and you thought, well, I, I feel bad about that. It's so easy. You get your, your attention diverted for just a minute, and you just think, my eyes are so heavy, I'm just going to close my eyes for a second, and the next thing you know, you're at the next place. There's a man by the name of Neil Plantinja, and uh, I think he has said maybe he, he's done the best job of putting this all together. He says, love, the God, love God with all your mind. In other words, you shall love God with everything you have, everything you are, everything. Every longing, every endowment, each of your intellectual gifts, any athletic talent, any computer skill, all capacity for delight, every good thing that has your fingerprints on it. Take all this, says Jesus, and refer it to God. Take your longing and long for God. Take your creaturely riches and endow God or give to God. Take your eye for beauty and appreciate God with your heart and soul and mind, with all your needs and splendors. Make a full turn toward God. Is that the way I pray? Do I get my emotions involved? Do I get my soul involved? Do I get my mind involved? Do I just go through the list or do, do I really let God have my mind and my full attention? If I'm supposed to worship, what is, what, is, what is making me resist that? Is it something in my heart? Is it something in my soul? Is it something in my mind? What keeps us from praying? Here's the other question that we need to answer. What should be included? If, if something is inhibit, inhibiting our prayer, what should be included in our prayer? Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I wasn't going to go here, but... The more I thought about this, the more I, I just felt compelled to do this. It's, it's prayer from a different viewpoint. It's, it's, we always look at prayer from our viewpoint, talking up to God, and, and I wanted to look back at what it looks like from God's viewpoint. What should be included in worshipful prayer? Because this is the scene in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Look at what it says. And when he had taken it, taken what? Well, John is there. We were at the Isle of Patmos. We were in the cave, we believe, where John got this message. And John sees that Jesus is there, and then he realizes that they need to have someone worthy to open a scroll, and there's no one, and he weeps. And the angel comes to him and says, wait a second. In verse 5, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? 
Say Jesus. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Now say it real loud. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who's the, who's the root of David? Same one, Jesus. So when he, Jesus, had taken what? The scroll that he was worthy to open. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense. Now get this. The incense is what? It's representative of something. The, the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Who are the saints? Us? St. Vaughn? Is that right? Yeah. It, it's all the believers. The saints, the prayers of the saints. Who, who are the saints? You're a saint. I'm a saint if you know Jesus Christ. Um, it, it was interesting because we were at a place, uh, Santorini, uh, an, an island off Greece, and we were there, and there was a church, St. George's Church. And somebody turned to me and said, that's your church, St. George. And in my mind, I just thought, I know me. I'm not any saint. Sorry, but I'm not no saint. The Lord says, I don't look at you the way you look at yourself. I look at you through Jesus Christ, through what he's accomplished. Look at verse 9, and they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang. If somebody ever says to you, I don't like the music in the church, it's too loud, wait till you get to heaven. Sorry, maybe we'll have new ears. But it says, in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen or amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Prayer from God's point of view. What should be included? Two things. Worship God for what He has done. Worship God for what He's done. Verse 9 says, With your blood He purchased Men for God, kingdoms and priests to serve our God. Pretty simple when things are going well. It's pretty simple when, when you realize that, that Jesus Christ died for you and he died for me. Jesus Christ, what we're going to celebrate next week at Easter, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died for you and he died for me. He died for everything wrong you've ever done, everything wrong I've done. But here's the startling part to me. If I'd been the only one that had ever sinned, Jesus Christ would have died for me alone. That's what he did for us. But he's done so much more. And he gives us life, and he gives us hope, and he gives us a plan, and he gives us, he gives us these things that we can come to him. It's pretty simple when everything's going right. It, it's not as simple when things aren't going the way that we, they, we think that they should. Blaise Pascal is one of my heroes. Uh, he was a mathematician physicist who lived many, many years ago. And one time he was very, very ill. In fact, it was the illness that would eventually take his life. And he wrote this to a friend. 
I hesitate to pray for relief, much less healing, just because I'm sick. I don't know which is most profitable to me, health or sickness, wealth or poverty, nor anything else in this world. That discernment is beyond the power of men or of angels. That discernment is hidden among the secrets of God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's ability to take care of all the details. That discernment is hidden among the secrets of God's providence, which I adore, but do not seek to fathom. Wow. What is he saying? Worship God for what he's done. When those days are good and when everything's going well, that's what we do. But you see, when when things aren't going well, I tend to revert to another person in the Bible, Job. You remember the story of Job? Job has 10 sons. He has, he has his family, and, and they're doing well, and he has wealth, and he has prosperity, and everything's going well. And, and God comes in, and he takes it away from him. His children die. His, his wealth in the form of donkeys and animals, all of his reserves are gone. They're stolen away from him. He loses property. He loses the, the good favor of people. The people now come and look at him and think that he's done something evil to God, and they begin to talk bad about him. So he's lost his good, good favor even with men. And, and then it, it goes on, and he loses his health. And, and the only thing he doesn't lose is his wife. And she says, curse God and die. And I'm Job, because when things don't go well, I want to say, God, can we have this talk? I want to line up all of my arguments about why you shouldn't do this for me. You know, when things aren't going the way I want them to go, I want to stand before God and say, hey, God, can we have a few minutes? I want to talk to you. I'm not Blaise Pascal. I'm Job. And the truth is, you probably are there too. I want this church to grow. I've poured my life into this church and to the people in this church and I love the people in this church and I want the church to grow and I keep praying and asking God for the church to grow. And we're not going backwards, but we're not going forwards. And I want to talk to God sometime and say, why isn't it growing, God? Is it me? If it is, take me out. Job 38.1, and the Lord answered Job, out of the storm. Did you notice that? What storm? If you look in Job 37, there's no storm. If you look in Job 39, there's no storm. What storm? The storm was his life. The storm was Job being just overwhelmed with the things not going the way that he thought he was. The storm was his children being dead. The storm was his finances being wrecked. The storm was everything out of control in his life. The storm was Job's life. And God answered Job out of the storm. He said, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. I have to praise God even when things don't seem to be going the way that I want them to go. Prayer that focuses on worshiping what God does from the foundation to the finish, even when life is a storm, radically changes how I experience life. Now, when I wrote that sentence, I had a hard time putting it together, so listen to it again. Prayer that focuses on worshiping what God does from the foundation to the finish, even when life is a storm, changes radically how I experience life. And this week I've come back to the Lord again and I've said, Lord, I will be faithful. 
I will do the things you've called me to do. I will worship you for what you've done in my life, in the lives of the people of this church. We will faithfully serve you to do those things you've called us to do. Number two, worship God for who he is. Worship God for who he is. That's the thing that they missed on Palm Sunday. They worshiped Jesus for what they wanted him to be, but not who he was. They worshiped Jesus because they wanted a political ruler. They worshiped Jesus because they wanted him to take Rome out. They worshiped Jesus because they wanted a change in their economy. They worshiped Jesus because they, they thought that he, they, he could change things around in first century uh, Israel. And folks, if that's the only reason that we're worshiping Jesus today, we're just as wrong as they were on that first Palm Sunday. They missed it. We worship God for who he is. Look again, it says in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Why? To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Folks, God does not have to do another single thing for all of eternity to be worthy of all honor and all praise and all power and all strength. God does not owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. It's life-changing prayer. Two illustrations and I'll quit. Helmut Thielich. Helmut Thielich was a, a German pastor of World War II and he suffered greatly. He was a, a university professor, and because he opposed Hitler, he, was, he lost his position as university professor uh, in a theological university. Uh, the SS harassed him. They questioned him hours. They tortured him. They, they beat him. And every time they would send him back, he would just go back to the pulpit, and he would preach. One day, he walked to the church in Stuttgart, where he was the pastor, and the church had been bombed overnight. When By the time he got there, it was just a smoldering ruin. There was nothing left. None of his books, none of the, no, no place to worship. And the only praise there was that no one was injured. And he spent several hours trying to coordinating what they could do. But there was nothing to retrieve. There was nothing left of it. And he walked back home to tell his wife. And he found his wife and his children standing in the street. And his house, while he had been gone, there had been another bombing raid. And his house had been completely leveled. Everything gone. Their clothes were gone their food was gone, their furniture was gone, their home was gone, there was no shelter, no nothing, everything was gone. A few days later, they went to stay with some friends, but food was really scarce, and he realized his children had not been eating, and he asked his children why they were doing that, and they said that mommy was sick, and so they were giving their food to mommy so that she would eat it, and they didn't, she didn't realize that the kids kept putting their food back on her plate, sneaking it on, because they knew that she was dying, literally, because she'd been giving her food to them. And Helmut realized that when one day he looked in at the friend's house where they were staying, and they had found a cookbook, and they'd opened the cookbook, and they saw a cake, and they began to lick the picture of the cake. They were so hungry, they just wanted food. What do you do as a parent when, you're, when your child is starved because they're giving their food to their mother to try to save her life? What do you do at that point? His heart broke. On Sunday, he stood up in the pulpit, and this is what he said. The one fixed pole, the one column, the one foundation that we have in all of the bewildering confusion is the faithfulness and dependability of God. We worship God for what he's done, but we worship him for who he is, even when it doesn't make sense. Jesus came and he spent his time with nobodies. 
with tax collectors and, and fishermen and widows and sinners and outcasts. Jesus came and spent time with people like us, people who did not deserve anything. Jesus came to love us and to, to serve us and to do all these things. And my greatest fear, and, and this is where I'll finish, my greatest fear is that I will not be like Job in the end, that I won't wait until then to finally get it. Because in Job 42, 6, Job says, my ears had heard of you. He knew who God was. He was faithful to God. At the beginning of Job, we find out he was the most faithful person that was alive at that point. God says, have you considered my faithful servant Job? And Job had heard of God. But at the end of Job, he says, my eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He said, I woke up. And, and now, Lord, when I pray, when I talk to you, it's not just this knowledge in the head. It's not just what I've heard. It's something I've experienced. It's something that's first place, firsthand, something I know I've experienced it. My prayer is that I don't have to wait until glory to do that. John and Crystal, are my young, our youngest son and daughter-in-law, called us this uh, several weeks ago and let us know that we're going to be grandparents again, number six, in, le- in case you're keeping count. Somebody said to me, Pastor, you should not brag about children. If you get up here and preach every week, you can brag about your kids as m- grandkids as much as you want. Six grandchildren, six grand- grandchild, and while we were gone, they found out some news, and they, when we got back, Crystal said, you know, we want to we have a FaceTime with you, and they wanted to give us some news, and we knew it was probably either that uh, we have a couple of nieces and nephews that have twins, and we were praying that that was not the news, uh, but we were hoping it was going, whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, and, and we got FaceTime, and we would have this connection, and it would, you know, we, we had to go stand in our backyard because the only place our cell phones don't work is in our house. Is that just frustrating? Joe and Sherry, they know, our same neighborhood. So we're standing outside with the, by the pool, and I'm holding it up, and I'm holding it down, and I'm holding it this way and holding it that way. And the, the picture keeps coming and going, and it keeps blacking out, and we keep losing connection. We start it all over again and, and, and all of that. And finally, I just said, just call the house and tell us we're dying here. So it's going to be a boy. We're going to have another grandson. Here's my point. I don't want my prayers to be like that phone call. Staticky and missing the connection because I've missed who God is. And I keep losing the connection because I never connect with what he's done and who he is. I want one day to leave this life when I breathe the final breath and to open my eyes and have Jesus say just one thing, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want the conversation that I've been having with him in prayer over my whole life just to continue unbroken. Because that's the picture of Revelation. Let's pray. What an amazing God you are, Father. It's so easy to to focus on different aspects, the mechanics of prayer, and to miss the real importance of it. That it's more than communication, it's communion. It, it's more than just talking, it's connecting. It's more than just thinking, it's feeling and knowing and experiencing who you are and what you've done. Father, 
what an amazing God you are. You cared so much about humanity that in the midst of our rebellion against you, you sent your son to die in our place. That you sent a rescue for us when we didn't want to be rescued. And then you gave it to us free. We didn't have to earn it, didn't have to pay for it. And it all came at Calvary. So thank you, Father, for that. So today, Father, may we serve you and love you and know you and grow in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.